Hi, you're with Julian on the brown note and the cost of living crisis, how we've created a new era of feudal serfs and lords of the manor. And I'm basing this on Sydney where I live as it's a particularly egregious example of what's happened, but it applies to most places in the UK as well, um, lots of parts of America and no doubt lots of parts of Europe and pretty much anyone that signed up for the neoliberal economic dream. So we're hearing a lot about how people can't afford to go to the supermarket and the increase in the costs of buying staples, how much it's gone up. But what we're really talking about over and over again is the cost of housing and rent, the cost of mortgages and rent. It's the number one contributing factor to how much damage the rest of these increases is doing to our lives. And we did it to ourselves in Sydney and in Australia. We voted for it. We anointed someone called John Howard, our Prime Minister around the year 2000, to push through an agenda that benefited people that already had a lot. Uh, the people that already owned their homes when things were fair, and then a raft of financial measures that ensured that it became a very valuable proposition to own extra property and rent it out. And over time, this accumulated wealth has been used to, not deliberately, but it has the effect of driving up the values of properties to obscene levels. And that impact has screwed people that own one home and are struggling to pay their mortgage and people who are renting, who are struggling to pay someone else's mortgage. We even voted for it again when we had an opportunity to ditch things like negative gearing or at least wind them back, which is the tax break for your multiple properties uh, and franking credits on tax you've never paid and the enormous benefits we've given to high earners and people with large super annuation retirement funds with Bill Shorten and we rejected it to vote in Scott Morrison. The impact of rent and mortgages and the cost on every other aspect of the economic picture in Australia is dramatic. The winding back of the amount of disposable or even necessary income that people have hits virtually everyone in society. Just so a percentage of the population can benefit, we spend our whole lives, and I've covered this subject so many times, but it just keeps getting worse. We spend our whole lives endeavours working to pay off other people's mortgages to give our lifetime's wages to another person's children. And when you put it like that, it's a little bit infuriating. So they used to say that you shouldn't spend more than 20% of your wage on, a, on rent. <laughs> Now anyone that lives in Sydney is just in hysterics at that figure.
I'm assuming that's going. So 20% of your wages is spent on your rent and that's a good figure. Well, let's have a look at that. I've broken down some figures here. So this is uh, from an article. You could deduce 20% and 25% is still okay. 30% of your income should be your upper limit if you're spending more than 30% of your income on rent and uh, you fall and fall into the bottom 40% of households on inco income, so nearly half the population, you might be at risk of rental or housing stress. So let's have a look at that. So the average, very low ball average one bedroom unit in Sydney would be around $500. You would struggle to get that in any major area. I know what people say, you shouldn't live in a city, you should live in a swamp where there are no jobs, etc. But let's just play this out realistically. The average across Sydney would be about 500. You could certainly spend a lot more than that on a one bedroom apartment. $80,000 a year is the average wage in Sydney at the moment. That's a take home salary of $1,190 a week. So remember the previous figure? 30% should be your upper limit. You earn the average wage in Sydney, you're spending 42% of your wage on rent to rent not a house but a one bedroom flat. You're spending 60% of your wage to earn to rent a two bedroom flat at 700 a week and you're spending 75% of your wage to rent a very cheap three bedroomed house at 900. Now it's at least $70,000 a year to breathe in Sydney now because everything has gone up. Electricity has gone up. Food has gone up. So those figures of 500 a week, you've got to add several hundred dollars before you've even paid for electricity and food to be realistic, not to mention your car. And that's for a baseline one bedroom apartment. But let's say we wanted to get out of this trap. Let's say we wanted to actually buy somewhere. You could probably get a mortgage of $350,000 on an average wage of $80,000 in Sydney. A realistic mortgage that you could afford to spend the same amount that you were spending on rent in your one bedroom flat. The average low figure for a one bedroom flat in Sydney is $630,000. So you can get around half enough for a one bedroom flat on the average wage. But realistically, many flats in Sydney that are one bedroom go for seven to $800,000. Even a $630,000 flat, the cheaper end of the one bedroom market, is approaching $4,000 a month in mortgage. To realistically cover that, you've got to be earning $150,000 a year. If you wanted a two bedroom flat, you've got to be earning something like $200,000 a year to cover a $5,000 a month mortgage. Because a one bedroom, one bedroom apartments in the inner west now are between seven and 800,000 and will likely tip 1 million for a one bedroom apartment in the next five years.
Now, that's not going anywhere near houses if you've got a family and you're looking to buy a house. The average median house price in Sydney is 1.333 spot million dollars. Actually, it's the one. It's just a shade below 1.34 million dollars. That's nearly 17 times the average wage for a three-bedroom house. Not an expensive one, but the general average where you've got to be able to find $2,000 a week on your mortgage, you would have to be earning $400,000 a year. If you look back to 1981, it was in today's money about $250,000 to buy a three bedroom house in Sydney. At that time, it was 3.1 times the average wage. It's now 17 times so you better stop eating that avocado. And I'm doing highball figures and lowball figures, but this is from the ABC. Other Australians are nothing like what you think. If you're on 60K, you're typical. I'm guessing you earn less than 200K. I'm guessing you think you're missing out. People keep telling us. Labour leader Anthony Albanese says, anyone earning 200K a year can't be described as the top end of town. Prime Minister Scott Morrison parried with interviewers when asked whether people on 180 to 200k are high income. They're hardworking people out in mines. I didn't realise that a lot of consultants and investment bankers worked out in mines. Uh, hardworking or not, Australians on more than 200k are rare. I'm not sure why politicians are so keen to tell us such incomes are normal. Maybe because they are on them. I think we've answered that question. Only 2% of those required to pay tax earn more than $211,000. Only 3% of those who pay tax in Australia earn more than $188,000. Yet to buy the average three bedroom home in Sydney, you've got to earn more than double that $400,000. Who set this up? We did and we let it go because we all thought that one day we'd all be rich as well. Instead, we put in a paradigm that ensures that every single cent we earn will pay off other people getting rich. Disposable income drives the economy. We saw that with COVID. Every time anyone argues that the unemployment benefit should go up, we saw a real world version of what would happen. If people on unemployment benefit had more money, they'd go into all of these businesses because they've got disposable income raising everything. It's the most logical economic paradigm there is. We spend money on essentials and then we spend money on things on top of that that we want. If you reduce people to the very basic fact of paying rent and electricity and just getting by, that impacts every business in our economy. The knock-on effect is terrible. The boost we saw for the economy over COVID because people on the dole got more money has just been ignored. If we wanted to benefit the economy, we would have kept those unemployment benefits at that level so that people could actually afford to spend money in the economy rather than just taking all the unemployment benefit that was given out and giving it to other people to pay off their mortgages.
The knock-on effect's terrible. The supermarket, the cafe, the bar, the restaurant. Going to the cinema, going to the shop. Buying appliances or cars. Buying clothes or travelling. How many people does this affect? How many businesses are people working in that are affected by people not having any disposable income just so they can afford rent or a mortgage? As a billionaire in America said, a billionaire doesn't buy a hundred times more jeans than a poor person. What they do is they take that money and accumulate it and spend it on property driving up the cost even more. But it's not even just businesses. For a start, it affects the industries that people can have a decent life in. We saw during COVID how much we rely on the essential side of life, the, the, the nurse, the teacher, even people in hospitality, in cleaning. They're the ones that are giving all their money away to someone else, even though we've regarded them as being essential. It affects what jobs people would consider taking or what hobbies they would take, affecting the culture of a country because they don't have the they have to work more the record number of people now working two jobs in sydney just to live impacts us culturally because they don't have the time or the money or the effort to do other things like pursue things they really enjoy doing which is a whole part of being alive and what happens when we get ill for protracted periods of time and can't work. Our safety net's gone. Or to have financial abilities to look after our parents if they're elderly and sick and didn't benefit. Or um, to have healthcare like, you know, dentistry. <laughs> Who the hell's got the money to go to the dentist and get essential work done? Or your children, where they study and what they end up doing in life and what opportunities there when they do. And are they going to follow their dreams or are they going to have to be shoehorned into an industry that earns enough money that they can actually live? The future we're offering is terrible. We're punishing the best of us and we're rewarding the least deserving. The people in industries that we wouldn't ever say were the most deserving. And we don't live in a meritocracy. We live in an inheritocracy, where as long as your folks bought a house 30 years ago, that's the only realistic economic paradigm that matters. And we tell everyone, you're smart, you work hard, that's rubbish. Really, if mummy and daddy were worth money because they bought a house a long time ago, that's all you need. And if you don't have that, you're screwed. Why do we think of propping up housing above all other investments? The only housing that matters is the one you rent and the one you've bought. All of the others are investments. If I went out and bought five or six vintage cars and the bottom dropped out of that market, you'd all laugh at me. So why do we prop up other people's investment properties? They're just investments. They don't live in them. As long as they've still got that one place to live, fine. The rest of it, screw it. They took a gamble on an investment, just as like buying it the stock market. 
but we ascribe value to it that has an honourable intention because it's housing, but it's not their housing. There really isn't a way out of this to make housing fair, but there are things that we can do. We have to start with the our very notion of investment properties ending. It's okay to have a holiday home, but I've realistically, you want to be able to afford that. Otherwise, the only house that matters is the one you rent or the one you, you own that you live in. Everything else off the table. 25% of rental properties in Australia are owned by 1% of people, and we defend these people. People will have to hurt, but these are investment properties. It's more important that all the people they're hurting have somewhere secure to live and not spend all their money paying off someone else's bad investment. We remove franking credits, entirely gone. And we remove negative gearing. In, and they can do it in stages. They can start with people that have more than one investment property. Who in the hell in this country is going to vote to keep negative gearing on six investment properties? The Labour Party are letting us down by not fighting tooth and nail like Bill Shorten did. Make it punitive to own multiple investment properties. You're not doing good for society. It's the most selfish thing that you could possibly do because you're driving up prices and hoovering up everyone else's money. When I came to Australia in 1997, I used to rent a three-bedroom house for $200 a week. You could earn 35, 40K and had a great life. That's probably like the equivalent of, I don't know, earning 70K in Sydney and being able to afford a three-bedroom house in rent. Which is laughable. I could, you couldn't even afford a one-bedroom flat on that, realistically. We destroyed the whole notion of a burgeoning middle class with economic neoliberalism. And instead of installed an inheritocracy in its place. And where people in finite industries do very, very well at the expense of the rest of us. We created an entirely new class of serfs, medieval serfs. There is a reason why they're called landlords. 